Well, good morning. I guess you can tell it's December because I see some long coats in this group. <laughs> uh, I'm up here this morning to uh, welcome you to Grace Community Church and also to talk a little bit about our small group ministry, which starts in January. Now, uh, we are offering five groups in uh, January. Two of them are continuations from uh, last semester, and they are closed because we have too many people in them already. But we have three other groups, and I thought rather than talk about them, I would have the leaders of those groups come up and take a couple of minutes each to explain them. So, Michael, if you'd come, and, uh, and then after you, uh, Robbie. Fancy. Hey, my name is Michael, and I work with the uh, Family Matters Ministry. Um, we will start in January with a new study called Growing Up. But before I mention that, um, famous last words. I don't know if you guys like famous last words, but uh, the French grammarian Dominique Bohours said, I'm about to or I am going to die. Either expression is used. As a joke. <laughs> I, my friend uh, who also writes got, uh, got that. Bob Marley said money can't buy life. Um, Beethoven said friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Benjamin Franklin said, a dying man can do nothing easy. Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. He said, go and make disciples. Go teach. Go and make disciples. Paul, in wasn't exactly his last words, but Paul to Timothy said, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.2, we see the four generations of disciple-making. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. So we're going to start uh, first of the year growing up by Robbie Gallaty, and just quickly I'll tell you that Growing Up is divided into two sections. It's a, it's a book about making disciples, but it's divided into two sections. The first three chapters build a case for the necessity of making disciples. Chapter four deals with training others to become godly. The remaining six chapters, if incorporated into your life, will aid in developing a closer walk with Christ and he breaks down, closer is an acronym, communicating with God through prayer, uh, learning to obey, obey uh, and apply God's word to your life, obey God's commands, store God's word in your heart, so on and so forth. So um, we're going to really dial into how to be a disciple who makes disciples. Um, and 6.30, Wednesday, 6.30 to 8, if you have kids that are involved in ministry, uh, it is here at the church, and we'd love for you to join us.
I don't know about you, but after that, I'm, I'm fired up about that, that class. So <laughs> that's, um, I want to ask everyone this morning, how many people in here have ever bought any real estate? Go ahead, show of hands. Okay, does anybody know the three most important things in buying real estate? This is an extremely advanced church, I can tell you right now. Location, location, location. You might say, well, that's not three things. Well, that just shows you how important that is in buying real estate because if it's not in the right place, you don't want it, okay? I'm going to tell you today that in Bible study, there, I'm going to tell you the three most important things in studying the Bible. Location, location, location. You might say, wow, how is that possible? Well, at seminary or Pastor Thad from the pulpit, he would actually say context, 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 which is the location uh, type theme that you might see when doing some study. And we're going to have a study up here on Sunday nights, and we're going to be looking at context and understanding of the seven churches that are talked about in the beginning of the book of Revelation. So you have these seven churches. They're over in western Turkey today. Uh, these were real places. Young people, it's, it's shocking, but these weren't made-up places, and they're just nothing out there. You can actually go and visit them. I had the opportunity to go there just a couple of months ago. I've seen these places, or many of them, and they're real. And it's really neat to be able to go and see these. And we're going to look at these places, and we're going to see what... Uh, these churches were like, what they experienced, and then we're going to bring that information back to today and see how these churches experience things very similar to what we experience today so that we can have a better understanding of the New Testament. You know, a lot of times we spend time studying the, uh, the Holy Lands, and it's great, and it's really neat. I hadn't got a chance to go there, but I know several people here have. It's wonderful to walk where Jesus walked. But you know what? The New Testament was actually written more toward people, not in the ancient Middle East, but more in Asia Minor and in Europe. So we want to study more about what life was like in that particular area. It will give us better understanding about what the New Testament's all about. So again, I want to encourage everyone, please come and uh, join one of these groups, whichever group you're in. Don't abandon those that are in those closed-off groups. You don't know how... Uh, hard it is to get into those closed off groups. Come join one of the open groups and uh, uh, please uh, participate this time. Thank you.
Thank you, Bob and Judy. We appreciate that. That was uh, the kind of kick off the season, the Christmas season, and uh, we were all decorated and we're ready to go. And uh, but the thing about it is, we try not to get so involved into the season that we forget what it's all about. So, folks, as we start off today, we're going to take that and get us ready to worship and sing about the Christmas, the true Christmas time. Uh, we're going to sing some songs and some carols. And so many times in carols, we just, we've sung them all of our lives, and we just tend to just kind of go over the words. The words have meaning on what it's all about. So we want to take the time, and as we sing these songs, let's worship the Lord as we're doing that. I want to invite you to all stand, and let's sing some songs together about the Christmas season. Thou dost leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room.
let's go to the next song, How Great Our Joy. While by our sheep we watch that seated. I ask y'all to um, let's read through a passage of scripture, may we? It's going to be in Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And I thought what we would do, we would just read it together. This is part of the Christmas story. I try not to call it a story. is the events that happened at the birth of our Lord. And just let's just read that together. And then the choir is going to sing a song says, He has come for us. You recognize the melody, but Jesus came for us, and uh, we're so thankful for him. Let's read this together, may we? And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the good news of great joy 
that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them.
Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your love for us, that you came searching for us. The offer is always there, but we know that through Christ is the only way that we can have that relationship with you, have our sins forgiven and avoid the wrath of God, to have our lives changed by your grace living within us as we walk and flowing out of us as we do good deeds and share your love with others. And also your grace that is with us even beyond the end into eternity. That time when we're face to face with Jesus and we can just wonder at all of his glory. Father, you've, come, you've sent your son to come for us. I pray that uh, we are then willing to go to others and tell them about this free gift that's offered by the God that loves the whole world in a way that he gave his only son so that all who believed in him could have eternal life. Thank you, Father, for your love, for the time we can gather together and worship and offer praises to you in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if Bob and Judy are back in here. Where, are they back in here? Well, I certainly enjoyed that. I was going to tell Bob that two of my favorite instruments are the trumpet and the saxophone. Anybody play the saxophone in here? Well, Debbie, next week is yours. I mean, I, Ron, you've got an introduction for next week, and we certainly appreciate you volunteering, Debbie. Uh, I couldn't get my lips to do what they needed to do for the trumpet. My lips were too big. I couldn't get them to, you know, that small. And when I was watching Bob this morning, you know, one of those things about playing an instrument, you, don't, you might not know. You know, they have these little release valves where the spit comes out, right? <laughs> so the first time, Bob, he missed the handkerchief. I didn't know if he knew that, but. The other three times he hit it just right. So. so if you ever wonder why they're blowing in their instrument and not making noise, they're trying to get rid of that spit. I know it's disgusting, but it's the truth. All right. Well, how many of you like a Reese's cup? Yeah. Only got one. But... And one of the things about a Reese's cup, and I don't, I don't know how you eat candy, but I'm kind of odd when it comes to eating stuff. Um, oh yeah, I can. <laughs> There's Grace. <laughs> uh, let's see, we don't live in the dispensation of law. So anyway, when you take a, a Reese's cup, like I've got right here. And you'd nibble around the edges, you know, the, just the chocolate. That's what I do first. Anybody else do this? Look at that. I'm not the only weird one in this place. But I want to nibble around that Reese's. 
to get to the best part. And when you take a bite of that best part, I mean, you have put your teeth into the best of the best. It doesn't get better than that. Now, if you just nibbled around that, that edge and not, never got to the centerpiece, you'd be missing out, wouldn't you? I mean, what would be the point of buying a Reese's cup? There wouldn't be. You just go buy you a Hershey's, it's all chocolate. I think when it comes to the scriptures, sometimes we nibble around the edges. And we get the chocolate and it's good. But we don't get the peanut butter and the chocolate. And I think it's important that we get all of it. And I was going to, last week, do something different this week. I got in the car and um, Trish and I were driving somewhere. And um, she was talking about it last week. And she said, baby, you going to continue on next week? I said, I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. She said, well, you need to. She said, I want to hear the rest of it. And I'm like, well, okay. So as the week went on, it was just very apparent the Lord wanted me to land back in Ephesians 1. Because I want to talk about and continue to talk about uh, our testimony. Remember we said that last week that Paul spent a good amount of time praying for those people that he ministered to. He was interested in them. He loved them. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. He wanted them to grow in the Lord. And uh, he wanted them to go deep. It wasn't one of those surface level kind of things. And, you know, we found out last week that, that Paul's own sanctification, you know, we're giving a window into that because he prayed for these folks. He gave thanks for them. And he had specific things he was praying for about them. And these things had to do with their life spiritually. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, remember what it said? For this reason, I too, Paul says, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. And we talked about that meaning more than just their initial saving faith, but it being their daily faith. And your love for all the saints, and we underscore that word all because it's one of those things we have to love all the saints. It's all-encompassing. Each one in this room that belongs to Christ. But he's very specific in talking about loving the believer. He says, I'm commending you for those things. He says, uh, after he commends them for that, he says, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And we find here then the content of his prayers. Beginning in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom. Okay, we talked about that. That that's the... Wisdom is, is that outflow of knowledge that once we come to know something, we, we act on that. Paul was praying that they would do that. And of revelation in the knowledge of him. And remember we talked about revelation being that, that lid that's taken off. And, and remember in real time, these guys were continually um, receiving... The revelation as God was giving it to the apostles who were writing. But we are at a great advantage, aren't we? Because we have the full revelation of God. We're able to, to read through and to understand what God's will is. And he says, um, and a revelation and a knowledge of him. And then as you have it in your Bible, 
if you are reading from the New American Standard, it looks like Paul's praying something else. But those three um, words there, I pray that, are italicized. And they're italicized for a reason. They don't appear in the original language. It's there for readability. So he's continuing really here in the, to the depths of the prayer. That's why um, I ate this little Reese's cup and kind of illustrated that we really kind of nibbled around the edges last week. And I wanted to kind of get into the, to the chocolate and to the peanut butter. And I'm going to give you the first two points and I'm going to let you study the last one because that's what you need to do. Um, but I wanted to kind of appreciate um, the original language today. And I think this is one of the, the great verses that we can come to, to to do that. Because in your translation it has this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know... And that word know there is a different word than gnosko, okay? This word has the idea of coming to an understanding, okay? He wants them to come to an understanding so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And that actual sentence continues all the way through verse 23. I'm going to let you study about God's power. I want to focus on two specific things this morning. Um, First of all, I want to focus on the hope to which he calls believers. And then I want to focus on the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But I want to show you what it would read like in the original This is the literal reading, okay, if you're going to have it. Now, one of the great advantages we have in the 21st century is that, you know, this is something that's available to you. You can go out there and study it yourself. You don't have to have me for it. There are so many helps when it comes to understanding the flow of a text, and it's very critical. I'm just being honest with you, right? I mean, when you do Bible study methods, one of the things that you want to try to accomplish is an understanding, as Robbie pointed out, Context, context, context. And you want to try to understand why the author is writing what he's writing. And then then for that audience, and then how can we apply it. And the best way to do that is to understand how it's being written. Okay? Otherwise, you can come to like a verse 18 and think, oh, that's a brand new sentence. It's not a brand new sentence. Paul's continuing on in this prayer. And this is how it reads. Being enlightened. The eyes of your heart of you in order for, in parentheses, the parentheses there is because that does not occur in the original, it's understood. In order for you to know what is the hope of the calling of him. You see how that's different than what this is here? His calling, the hope of the calling of him, okay? What are, and again, are is assumed there, the riches of the glory of the inheritance of him in the saints. Look how it is in your translation. What are the riches of his inheritance in the saints? Now, you may look at that and you go, that's just being picky. No, it's not. Because if you're going to understand in context what he's saying, especially as it relates to that second point he makes... You have to understand that he's not writing about 
the inheritance we have. We do have an inheritance. He talks about that in verse uh, 13 and verse 14. And if you want to just take the whole section in 3 through 14, uh, that's the inheritance described of the believer. But he specifically mentions that in verse 14 about the inheritance that we have. But he's not talking about the inheritance that we have in this verse. And it is really incredible when you consider what Paul is saying to these believers. No wonder he wanted them to have an understanding of the text. No wonder he prays that they would come to know these things. Another introductory point that needs to be made concerns that phrase being enlightened. Now the way that, you, the way that we read it in our translation, we think that Paul's praying for something that they don't have. But they already have it. Okay? So that's, how, that's why it's so important. They've already been enlightened. The tense of the verb there means they had at a point in time in the past been enlightened and they were continuing to be enlightened. All right? Does that make sense? In other words, he's not praying that they would have that. He's, he's praying that they would continue to have that as things were revealed to them. So that's very important. He's not praying for something new in their life. They already had been enlightened. We know that the Spirit of God resided in them at the point of salvation, just as he resides in us at the point of salvation, and they were being enlightened through the truth of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit of God as he worked in them. That's why it's so imperative that believers today have this mindset, the Spirit of God is my teacher. Did you hear that? The Spirit of God is my teacher. There's so much emphasis placed on man. Not enough emphasis placed on the Spirit of God. I had a man that in New York, we golfed together all the time. and He was a born-again believer, great man. And, and uh, he said, Dad, I just wish I could understand things. I said, you can. If you belong to the Lord, you can. That doesn't mean we don't have teachers, we don't have helps. But the Spirit of God is your teacher. Do you agree with that? He's the one that illumines us, gives us knowledge of what's there. So that's important to kind of understand, I think, initially as you come into the verse, that you understand that they had already been enlightened. Um, and they were continuing to be enlightened as Revelation was unfolding. Now notice the next phrase. He says, being enlightened, the eyes of your, of your heart of you. Well, that's kind of a strange statement. Well, what in the world is he talking about? He's praying that they would have and continue to have spiritual vision. How many of you have been to the eye doctor in the last year to two, three years? How many of you have not been in the last ten years? I have bought these readers for a few bucks, and so they work. But when you go to the eye doctor, you go because your vision is not what? Maybe as clear as you would like it to be. 
And you know the little test they give you? You know, where you look through that little thing and they say, which one's clear, one or two, three or four? It's like it's recorded. One or two, three or four. It's like, oh my goodness. But what are they trying to do? Help you to figure out what gives you what? Clarity, the best vision. Well, that's the idea of this word. He's praying that they would continue to have clear vision. And one of the most frustrating things for believers is when they don't have what? Clear vision. Are there times when believers don't have clear vision? Oh, yeah. Does it mean that God's not already revealed to, not already revealed to us what he wants? No. It just means they haven't necessarily approached the text or had the eyes to see. When we're reading through the scriptures and studying through the scriptures, one of the things that we need to pray is that we would have eyes to see what's being said by the Lord. Well, the first thing that he is praying that they would see, notice this, be enlightened the eyes of your heart of you in order that you, right, would know what is the hope of the calling of him. And when we think about the calling of the Lord, what do we think about initially? The call to salvation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 and other passages of Scripture. There's kind of a debate as to what Paul is referring to here when he's talking about the hope of the calling of him. Is he talking about only the past, that initial call, or is he talking about the present hope that believers have because of the calling of the Lord in their life and the future hope that believers have because of the calling in their life. Well, I kind of think that he's doing all three. And so when we think about the initial call of the Lord in our lives, that takes us back to what? Our salvation. Okay? The time when you and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know the word calling is a, a really interesting word in the original language? It pictures an an invitation to a banquet, right? An invitation to a banquet, or it can also mean a summons, one who is summoned. What do we think about when we think about one being summoned? We think about the courtroom, okay? So there's a couple of big pictures there that come with that word calling. So there's that initial calling that the Lord has in the life of those that belong to him. But that I want to talk about, for just a few moments, the, the present hope of our calling. Because scripture speaks about that. And it's tied to the past. The present hope that we have of the calling in our life connects back to the past. And specifically to the past event of the resurrection of Christ. Peter talks about it. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, who's us, believers, to be born again to a what hope? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. This is not like the world has hope. 
People in our world, you know, a lot of them hope for riches. But most will never become wealthy. Do you know that? But if you belong to Christ today, you have a hope that's a confidence. It's not a hope so. In fact, the word in the original language means confident. And it can even mean a confident expectation, which really speaks, in essence, to the future hope, or excuse me, the present hope and the future hope. So the present hope is this. We have a living hope, and that living hope is connected to a past event, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One theologian said, life without Christ is a hopeless end. Listen to this. Whereas life in Christ is an endless hope. Let me repeat that. Life without Christ is a hopeless end, the world. Whereas life in Christ is an endless hope, the believer. So that no matter what goes on in this present life, we have hope because Christ rose from the dead. And our salvation is based on what? That hope. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I declare to you the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was what? Raised. From the dead according to the scriptures. And if I remember correctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I believe it's down in verse 18. 19. If we have hoped and he's writing to believers here. Listen to this. Which transitions perfectly to what we're doing next. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only. Now, is it good to hope in Christ in this life? Yes. But Paul says if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we, and Paul underscores himself as well, we are of all men most to be pitied. I mean, if this is it, my hope is in, you know, the house I have or the job I have or the kids I have or the wife I have. Or the things I have. My hope is in Christ. How about you? Well, that's the present hope, which ties back to the past. Then there's the future hope of our calling. And that's looking, and this is the only way I need to put it, that's looking for Jesus Christ. The certainty of a future with the Lord Jesus is one believer should be expectingly looking forward to. Are you? You know, when life's good and we're going along through life and nothing's going wrong, I'm not sure we're thinking about the future hope. When things are tough, 
what tends to happen. We think about that future hope. Tim Jinks was a 41-year-old father with five children. His wife's name was Beverly. He was diagnosed with cancer. He lived one year. In the one year that he lived, I was able to go to his house on a pretty regular basis. And one of the things that he and I did was study the Bible together. Now, in the beginning, there was this, what are we going to study? But as time went on, I'll never forget, he said to me one day, and it was early on, he said, Thad, I would like to study about the hope of heaven. That makes sense. So you know what we did? We studied about the hope of heaven. And you know what started happening? It was me and Tim, and then it was me and Tim and Beverly, which was his wife, and then it was me and Tim and Beverly and his children. Because we know, as Paul writes, our citizenship's not here. Tim died a year later. Went to be with the Lord. I think there were two of the kids that were in my youth group at the time. Watching those children during that. Now listen, from the point of where it was really raw and really hurtful to the point where at the funeral, it was like, Pastor Thad, I'm so glad to know my dad is with the Lord and that we have that hope that one day we're going to see him. Well, in real time, that's important to people. So part of the future hope of our calling is spoken about in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's the hope. You know, the hope and, and I, I was thinking about this all week long. The hope of the calling, whether you, you're talking about the past, present, or future, it's all around one person. Jesus Christ. And that's why Wayne Barber writes what he does. The hope of his calling points to the certain destiny and future glory of the saints. Notice he put certain. Why can we say certain? Because the Word of God tells us. Well, there's practical application to this as we think about the hope of the calling of Him. Boy, if you were Paul and you're writing this, and you're letting these guys know you're praying for them and you're, you, this is how you're doing that. 
I mean, don't you know just the joy that that brought Paul that, you know, yeah, we're praying just as an example. Hey, it, Epaphroditus was ill to the point of death and we served along with him. But praying for something that was spiritual in nature, that, that, that had to do with the believer's walk, I just think we're missing out potentially if we're not praying like Paul is. I would ask you, I did at the end of the service last week, I want you to pray for me. I mean, I have physical conditions. I'm not going to go through them with you. I don't know that you'd really want to listen. But I want you to pray for my spiritual life. I want you to pray that I would know the hope of my calling. That's what I want. That's what Paul wanted for these believers. This comes with some application. The hope of our calling. Here it is. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice what it says. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That word sanctify, as you know, means to set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense. That word defense there, we get the word apologetics from that. We need to be ready to defend, he says, to everyone who asks you to give an account. Now, that word's an interesting word, too. It has the idea of making a clear presentation to someone. So, in other words, if somebody says to you, how do you know that Jesus Christ is the way to God? How are you going to answer that question? Is it a question that may come up in your life? Yes. Is it one that we need to know the answer to? Yes. How are you doing that? I know when I was younger, I'd say, well, let's go talk to my pastor. Let's go talk to the elders. That's okay to do that. But isn't it important that every single believer be ready to defend? I mean, in football, think about it. You don't put 11 men on the field and say, hey, I want 10 of you to be ready. When the 11th dude's going, what? You don't put five guys on a basketball court, court and say, hey, I want four of you to defend. No. They're all expected to do what? Defend. Same here. We're all expected, Peter says, to give an account, a clear presentation for the hope, and that connects always back to Christ, that is in you. I love these next words. This is maybe what we could all work on. So we're given a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're sitting in front of someone, right? And we want to do that with clarity. Notice the attitude that we're to have, the approach. Hey, listen up. Is that it? Not it. He says, with gentleness, with gentleness and reverence. So, this future hope, the hope of the calling of the believer, is a big deal. And Paul prays for them. That they would know the hope of the calling of him. I hope you know 
that hope of the calling in your life, past, present, and future. Next thing he prays that they would know, look at this, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, now I'm reading from the New American Standard, so that you will know what is the hope of the calling of him or his calling. And then he says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Remember we said that it reads this way. That they, as he says, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of him and the saints? So there's two viewpoints on this, and um, there's good theologians on both sides of the aisle. But what I did find is most theologians are willing to land on both of them, that both are good to discuss. And while I believe that both are good to discuss, there's one in context. And the one in context, I believe, is the first view. The first view says the saints are his inheritance. Now, I want you to underscore that. The saints are God's inheritance. Let me say it again. The saints are God's inheritance. How does that sound to you? It's amazing. I have in my notes, it's mind-blowing. Blows my mind. Well, that's one view. The other view is that the inheritance speaks of the glorious riches believers have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, do believers have glorious riches in the Lord Jesus Christ? Answer, yes. How do we know that? Well, if you go back up to verse 14, it tells us who is given, meaning the Holy Spirit, as a pledge of our inheritance. We have an inheritance, Paul says. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So yes, believers have an inheritance. What's our inheritance? Believer? Christ. Heaven. We get heaven. We get the presence of Christ. But Paul's prayer is that they would know God's rich and glorious inheritance and the rich and glorious inheritance of God now listen to this the rich and glorious inheritance of God are the saints that that doesn't even make any sense I know it doesn't you're not telling me something I haven't considered because I'm thinking this and I wrote it in my notes believers are God's rich and glorious inheritance That's what it says. That's how it reads in the original language. You just can't get around it. (laughs) The riches of the glory of the inheritance of him in the saints. We are God's inheritance. The language strongly suggests that to us. How many of you have inherited something to this point in your life? Yeah. People don't like to necessarily discuss the subject of inheritance because a lot of times it's around death. But the reality is that inheritance is a part of the discussion of life. But think about this. When we think about inheritance, we think about 
one specific moment. You know, someone passes away, they go to be with the Lord, and there is an inheritance. Things that are being handed down, and they are given to you. They're yours. But it's typically at one time, and that's what you get. And you walk away and, hey, I got my inheritance. This one is mind-blowing. The inheritance of God are his people. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about this. If we are the inheritance of God... Maybe we could say non, there's a non-stop inheritance that God receives. Doesn't stop. It's not just a moment in time. It continues. Because if we're his inheritance, then to be absent from the body is to do what? Be present with the Lord. He's always inheriting I never had thought about that before in my whole life. And I even wrote it in my notes. I had never thought about that in my whole life. And it made me think about this verse in Psalm 116, verse 15. And we quote it, but now it's taken on a completely different thought to me. Precious in the sight of of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Why? Because he's receiving them. They're his. <laughs> I like what S. Lewis Johnson says. I hope this is the next slide. Thank you, Lord. Paul is not speaking so much about what we have in Christ. So he's one of those that's kind of in the middle here. There's nothing wrong with talking about that. He says, but about what he has in us. He thinks of us as his inheritance. How many of you think that's crazy? Just me? It's crazy. In the Old Testament, the Lord referred to Israel as his portion. Well, there's Old Testament scripture that speaks to the fact that Israel is in his inheritance. Look at this. They are your people, even your what? Inheritance. Whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched hand. Well, then you go to the New Testament. Guess what? Just as John Walbert says, it's for the church as well. That we are his possession. And this is the verse that Walbert used. He said, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you, he says, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. There's that word called. Into his marvelous light. Hey guys, can you just stop with me for a moment and think about this for a second? We are his inheritance. Deserve it? <laughs> no. Do anything to earn it? No. 
Man, at salvation, we got a lot more than we ever thought, right? Maybe Lehman Strauss is the next one. Thank you, Lord. I love what he writes. He taught for eight years, Lehman Strauss did, at Philadelphia Bible Institute. And he served as pastor at Calvary Baptist Church of Bristol, Pennsylvania. And he wrote this. He has riches untold. But his riches are not in the universe that he possesses, nor in the substance on the earth, but in the saints that were purchased by the precious blood of his one and only son. So what makes his inheritance precious? His one and only son. And his one and only son covering us with his righteousness. So I wrote this down for us to think about. Maybe our thoughts should be more on what we are to God, not what we can get from God. It's good to think about. What's the practical application of this? I believe it's this, one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is where? In you. He's referring there to the Holy Spirit. Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. Why? For you have been what? Bought. You've been purchased. It's redemption. You have been bought with a price. Peter wrote about that precious redemption. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You've been bought with a price. He says, therefore glorify God in your body. Oh, so there's something that comes with this. If I'm identified as his and I am his inheritance and in the future I'm going to be with him for an eternity, then I need to think about the present because I've been purchased by the Lord and it cost the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe there ought to be more thought to the last part of that phrase. But that last part of the phrase there in, in 20 makes a lot more sense when you understand you've been bought. If somebody just says, well, hey, you need to glorify God in your body. Okay, what? why? You've been bought. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. You're his. Well, if we come to understand this inheritance, there's some things that we need to be able to ask. I'm not going to assume that you've thought about the fact that you are God's inheritance. Maybe you have thought about that, but maybe you've never thought about that. Um, but there are 10 questions that I want you to think through this morning as a result of this. This is where that practical, I think, application takes on a little bit more meat to it in terms of what we need to do. 
Um, but there are questions that we need to ask ourselves in light of the fact that we are his inheritance. Number one, how will the understanding of being his inheritance, can, yeah, you can see that, impact my life moving forward? That's just a general question. How's that going to impact my life? I mean, maybe you walked in here this morning, I never knew that, Thad. I never knew I was his inheritance. Well, now you know. So how will that impact my life moving forward? And here's some specific questions that I think need to be asked. How will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my view of heaven? What's your view of heaven? Okay, Christ. If you went out and asked the world, just the world, what's your thought of heaven? Man, you're going to get answers all over the place. From, I don't believe there's a heaven, to, man, I just believe heaven's about partying. That's what's going to happen, okay? But now, if you ask the believer, what is your view of heaven, what kind of answers are you going to receive? Anybody? I'm sorry? Straits of gold, okay? What else? Hmm? Jesus. Heaven is about streets of gold. It's about Jesus. It's about worship. Okay, it's about loved ones being reunited. Dwelling places. Huh? A forever home. Say that again, Anthony. Uninterrupted joy and intimacy. How about that? That's pretty good. I'm sorry? No pain. No suffering, no more crying. None of that. Huh? Home. Who said that? Home. There's a, no, that's a great word. I'm just thinking... That's awesome, because when we think about home, that's not always a pretty picture, is it? It's not. But for the believer, home is, hey, it's the Lord. It's me being with him, and it's me being with him in uninterrupted fellowship and joy. Maybe we'll be even more willing to talk about heaven as we understand this. Third, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my time with him moving forward? Is it a good question to ask based on that question, how well do we know the Lord? Yeah. When I was a, a child, I grew up in a Bible church great Bible Sunday school teachers, just like we have here. I knew a lot of the stories growing up. I came to know the Lord as my Savior when I was seven. And as time marched forward, you know what I was challenged with? My personal time with the Lord. Because I had time with the church, and for a kid, that's what, hey, I go to church today. Oh, yeah. That's where I hear all that Christian stuff. But as we get older in the Lord and we understand the glory of the riches 
of the inheritance of him and the saints, it should be, whoa, I need to really think through this eternal life that I have. Well, there's more questions. Four, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my conversations moving forward? Because, see, people, I think people have a general thought, if I come to know Christ as my Savior, I get heaven. And that's true. But there's so much more that's wrapped around that. Five, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact serving moving forward? Should. How will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my finances moving forward? Where's your investment? Here or there, right? You know, one of the things I really love about the churches the Lord's allowed me to serve in is the, the emphasis on missions. Um, Berean Bible Church was missions-minded. Our church is missions-minded. There's so many needs out there to help the gospel move forward that we get to be a part of. And I think thinking through that, you know, I get to invest in eternity in an eternal way. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Number six. Number seven, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my view of death? Well, maybe I'm not so fearful of it. Because death is a mystery. It's in front of all of us if he doesn't come back. Number eight, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my relationship with other believers? We get to talk about it. That's one of the things we get to do. And you know, guys, all this is wrapped up in the fact that we're qualified to be his his inheritance because of the righteousness of Christ and because we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. How will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my relationship with other believers? Nine, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my life of witnessing? Well, I have a lot to talk about with a person who does not belong to Christ. And by the way, that life of witnessing is the responsibility, as we know from even what was mentioned earlier, when Michael was talking about introducing his class, That's the responsibility of every believer. Just like the Lord said, hey, look, all of you are going to be my witnesses. If the Lord Jesus was here and standing in front of us, he would say the same thing. Hey, all of you are my witnesses. So it should impact us. And then number 10, how will the understanding of being his inheritance impact my testimony moving forward? And that's where all of this started. Originally, I I was going to talk about our testimony. And it came as a result of having a conversation with a couple of people, one specific lady who commented uh, after a funeral that I had done, and her comment was that her pastor put together this booklet of all these testimonies of her people, of his people, of all their testimonies that they had, when they came to know Christ, what had happened in their life since they had come to know Christ. So I have a challenge for you, and you can do the assignment or not you know when you go to school you have to do the assignment yes you don't you get an F if you don't do it 
Well, you won't get an F if you don't do this, but I would love to know your testimony. I would love to know that. I would love to know when that day of justification was for you and then what's happened in your life since that point. You said, that I'm only 45 years old. I'm going to live till I'm 80. You have no idea that's going to happen. I'd like to know it. I'd like to know what the Lord is doing in your life. I want to uh, close our time together by fulfilling my assignment requirements. I grew up in a Christian home. I was saved at the age of seven. A man named Phil Newsom witnessed to me. Now, I had been witnessed to before, but Phil kept on. He was persistent. He worked in Child Evangelism Fellowship. And if you know anything about Child Evangelism Fellowship, they're always sharing the gospel. And so he was always sharing the gospel. And he shared the gospel with me one night in my home and light came on I knew I was a sinner in need of a savior and I trusted Christ that night at the age of seven well I couldn't wait to tell my buddies I went down the street and I told Greg David I said you're a sinner you need Christ I didn't know how to witness. I was a seven-year-old kid. I just knew that I was a sinner. And, well, he was too. If I was, he was. And so Greg and Donnie and Clifton, and they had a sister named Susie. She was one of those tomboys. When we played football, you didn't want to get tackled by Susie. It was bad. But, and then several more in the neighborhood, Jeff Thibodeau and his brother. I mean, there was all these Cajun people in that neighborhood. And one of the things that, I did after I got saved. I said, Mom, Dad, we got to have one of our five-day clubs. I mean, my friends need to know the Lord. And so we did. We had a five-day club, and they did it all the time. It wasn't something they didn't do anyway. And a lot of my friends got saved at that age. And if you know anything about southwest Louisiana, that is predominantly Roman Catholic. And so there was a huge um, uprising in our neighborhood, so to speak, when these kids came to Christ. Well... Continued to go to church at uh, Lake Charles Bible Church growing up. Uh, had a couple of youth pastors, one specifically named Jim Pence, who some of you met before, if you remember Jim. And uh, Jim never left me alone. He just wouldn't leave me alone. And I'll be honest with you, if Jim was sitting here, I'd tell him. There was times I wanted him to leave me alone. He'd say, hey, Thad, you want to get your tennis racket and go play tennis? And I'm like, Sure. I'm thinking with you. <laughs> but we went, and he was always talking to me about my quiet times. Hey, Thad, are you in the Word? No, you need to be in the Word. Okay. Remember the first night he had youth group. First night he had youth group, he said, we're going to study the Gospel of John together. Everyone, I put it in a concordance in front of every one of you. And we're going to study the Gospel. Like, like a concordance? What is that? Why do I need that? And he had paper, he had pen, the whole nine yards. And you know what he spent time doing with us on Wednesday nights? Studying the Word. When I was 17 years old, I uh, graduated from high school. I had a late birthday. So I graduated at 17, and I was outside washing my car one day, and my dad said, Son, you're not going to just bum off of me. 
rest of your life, if you get thought, given thought to what you're going to do? I'm like, not a whole lot. He said, well, I know you're not going to make money with your hands. I was like, yeah, I know that too. Because he had given me this test, and I flunked it miserably. And um, he said, I do want you to go to Bible college for a year. And he said, I want you to have a good foundation. And so whatever you choose, I'll support you, but Bible college for a year. Well, Jim had taken us to Southeastern Bible College in 1981 and 82 to these, they had like a, conferences for young people and so I went and I was thinking as I was washing my two-tone pinto that day maybe I'll just go to Bible college for a year and get that over with that was my mindset and so I went and I started studying the Bible and um for the very first time, I had assignments like read through the New Testament, read through the Old Testament, um, introduced to doctrines that were very basic, as I look back now, but at the time were overwhelming, um, met Teresa. And outside of my salvation, the best things ever happened to me is Teresa. And um, I loved her. I told a guy, I remember in chapel, I said, I'm going to marry that girl right up there. He said, Dad, you're not going to marry her. Like, you can't do that. And, uh, but with the help of the Lord, I did. And uh, when I was a junior, uh, I kept going back to school there. And when I was a junior, my grade point average was lower than uh, dust. And uh, Miss Judge, who was the uh, uh, kind of the office lady, she said, Thad, um, you're not going to be able to come back to school next year. And man, I was just blown. I just blew me. I was thinking, well, why not? I'm playing basketball and I'm dating Teresa. And I mean, you know, and so um, then I, um, it was just really bothersome. And what was bothering me was not the grades. It was I couldn't come back and be with Teresa and my friends. And so this was 19, the fall of 1984. And um, I was like, what am I going to do? I, first of all, i got to tell Dad I flunked out. That's going to be not a good conversation. And then, what am I going to do? And I, my grandparents, who lived in Russellville, Arkansas, said, why don't you just come live with us for a semester? And I'm like, okay, I don't have anything else to do. I was 20 years old. And so I went to work for Food for Less. It was a grocery store up there in Russellville. And um, Bobby was my manager. He is a crazy guy. But I became a backdoor manager pretty quickly. And um, within two to three months. And, uh, and then my, the, the biggest part of that story is my grandmother. When I came up in that fall, she said, she had told her pastor, Brother Morris, that I was in the ministry and I was going to go into the ministry. And I'm like, Grandma, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to school and I, I want to date Teresa. That's all I know. And um, so she volunteered me um, to work with their youth ministry. And I was 20 years old. Um, and so I did. I didn't have any choice. It was my grandmother. So... I worked with that youth ministry. There were 10 students 
I asked them to put on a sheet of paper, what do you want to study? Mistake. They said the book of Revelation. So I had had Bible study methods under George, and so I knew some basic things, but I wasn't applying those things, obviously. And I started studying. I never made it out of chapter one that fall. And um, every week we just go through it verse by verse. But what it did is it put a hunger in me. I just, I loved, I couldn't wait for Wednesdays. And um, so I uh, went back to school on academic probation. And I was initially enrolled in physical education. I was going to be a coach. (laughs) And so I told um, my professor that I wanted to change my major to Christian education. He said, that, why do you want to do that? I said, well, I've been, and I told him the story about Russellville and working with those kids. He's like, okay. So I changed because I could get more Bible classes. And so I started getting more Bible classes. A semester went by. I'm like, yeah, I need more Bible than this. So I went to Dr. Talley, and I said, Dr. Talley, I want more Bible than what I'm getting in Christian ed. He said, Thad, you either have to enroll in pastoral theology or pre-sim. Like, well, I'm not a seminary student. I'll just do pastoral theology. So I tell my buddies. They find it, Dad, what are you doing? I was like, studying the Bible. Don't you know you have to preach in front of people? Now I'll get to that bridge when I have to. Long story short, at school, the Lord just kept pushing me with a desire to know more about his word. That was really it. So when I graduated in 1988, I had the opportunity to preach to the student body, um, myself and one other guy. And I'll never forget Dr. Talley at the end of the message. He comes up and he walks up and he said, Thad Blunt, I never would have believed in a million years you'd be standing behind that pulpit. And I said, that makes two of us. Um, So I graduated and taught at Parkway for a year and coached and thought, man, this is going to be the life and and the Lord had different plans, and I was actually terminated at the school for standing on the doctrine of eternal security. And so I knew it was the right thing to do. Then the Lord took me through a year of humbling me, of uh, working as an electrician's helper. And believe me, when I say helper, I mean helper. And um, I was miserable. The worst part of it is my jeans were dirty every day, and my T-shirt was. It was an embarrassment to me. Because you have to remember, I graduated with college with a degree. What am I doing with this? And the Lord's like, Dad, you know what? You're just way too arrogant. You need to learn how a man works. And you didn't learn all of it. So long story short, I had different jobs. And then in uh, 1990 in the fall, Teresa came home one day and she said, Honey, you're miserable, aren't you? I said, Yep. She said, Well, I want you to know something. Wherever the Lord calls you, I'll go. I was like, well, all righty. <laughs> so I started sending out resumes and ended up in Green, New York. And uh, both George and Dr. Hugh know Phil Stam. And he was my pastor there. And, uh, man, I was green. And I had a lot of Bible knowledge, but I didn't have application of it. And so he took me under his wing for five years. And um, then you guys know the rest of the story when coming to, to Springville Road in 96. And then eventually pastoring 
Springville Road and Grace. But I got all that to say one thing, that as I look back on my life, all of that was about Christ. He did all those things, you know, from beginning to end. And as I look out in this congregation today, I don't know all of you well. Some are visiting today. Um, there was two things that I told Dr. Stephen Olford one day. I was meeting with him. And this was right before I started pastoring um, Springville Road. I was not certain. I was unsure. And I'll never forget Dr. Olford took me in his office. And he said, Thad, I've got two questions for you. Okay, because I was considering, well, should I pastor the church or not? And like the easy way would be to say I'm resigning and go to another church. He said, let me ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, why did, would you want to pastor that church? And I thought, well, there's only two reasons I know of. And he said, what are they? I said, I love the Lord and his word, and I love those people. He looked at me and he said, qualified. I said, but I'm so young, Dr. Olford. He said, well, I was too at one time. And I can say that in my testimony, the congregation of Springville Road and Grace is a large part of that. And I know I've been with you a while and you hear my voice all the time. But I want you to know this, that I love the Lord and I love his word and I love you. I want all of us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and to have a testimony that tells other people, hey, life for me is Christ. It's Christ. So, all right, well, you guys have an assignment, so send it to me by way of email or drop it off at the office. I'd love to, love to read it. All right, let's pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for another day of life. I thank you for um, the privilege of being able to open your word on a weekly basis with these folks and to be able to take a look at what your word has, says and what it reveals to us. And Father, I just want to thank you that Paul's prayer life was one that we truly can mimic. We can look back at and say, well, there's a lot of things there to consider and to consider our calling and to consider your inheritance, which is us who have been um, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's just an amazing thought. Um, I know how encouraging it must have been. And as I think about all of the things Paul wrote around that in his giving of thanks, I think that he was imprisoned at the time. And he was writing about all these things that were so rich for believers in the certain future and I think about the things that we go through in this life and I pray you would help us to understand and, and have the right perspective in things as they go along in life and as I always say as you round a corner you, you don't always know what's there and what you're going to be met with but we know that you're with us and so we can take comfort in that and I want to pray for this congregation Father, I want to pray for their spiritual life and their walk with you. And I pray that they would come to understand the riches that you talk about for the believer in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. 
And I pray that we would come to understand those things better, that we would come to appreciate those things better. And as we have an opportunity to interact with other people about our testimony, it won't just be simply historical. But Lord, I, I want to close by saying the way that you're working in my life now is a renewed um, urgency that you've put in my life to know you better. And I just want to pray that that would be something that all of us would consider as we walk each day with you. I want to close by thanking you for the fellowship that we enjoy with one another in Christ and pray for any in this congregation today who might not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that they might come to know you today. And so I just pray that as we leave this place that you would help us to walk by your Spirit, help us to be controlled by your Spirit, help us to have opportunity, and as we have that, to be able to share with others the goodness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray all of these things. Amen. Guys, there's no closing song unless you want me to close. Um, so you don't, I can tell, because you're getting up. You are dismissed.